The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 17. We're going to start tonight in verse 10. Uh, Last week, we talked about gospel-shaped conflict and introspection, along with our need to trust the Lord's sovereign justice instead of taking our own vengeance. Now, that theme is going to continue into our scriptures today as we finish Psalm 17. But there's also something here that looks pretty confusing at face value, but it really shouldn't be. And we're going to need the Holy Spirit's help to enjoy the freedom that comes with clearly understanding and humbly living out these truths. So I hope you turn to Psalm 17. Like I said, we're going to start in verse 10. That glitch in my speech was putting 10 and 17 together. You probably heard it, 17, but that's not a thing. So we're in Psalm 17. We're going to start in verse 10. We're going to read to the end, okay? Here we go. They have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He's like a lion that is eager to tear and a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Lord. From men of this world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, verses 10 through 13 continue the theme from last week. David is talking about these enemies wanting to take him out. And he's entrusting himself and them to be dealt with by the hand of the Lord and not his own. And so if you want more on that, uh, the podcast is up from last week. But then verse 14 takes what looks like a confusing turn as it describes these enemies in more detail. And verse 14, this is where we're going to focus most of our attention today. Now, as we examine this verse closely, we'll see some things that can serve as stern warning for us, but also stunning, paradigm-shifting encouragement for us at the same time. It can be warning to us because the folly described here is a perpetual and pervasive temptation for every human, not just these guys who are coming after David. And that's true whether someone is saved by God's grace or whether they're still trying to save themselves. But it can be encouraging because to grasp the true reality of how God deals with us and the reality of what he's doing in us is to be truly set free from much of what often causes us confusion and discouragement. Amen. So I'm going to read verse 14 again, because I told you we're going to camp there. So it says, From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of this world, whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they're satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. And so we see these words, whose portion, talks about a full belly, satisfied with. And so the overall theme here is that these enemies of David They are satisfied with the trappings of this life. But the confusing part is who fills their bellies and with what? Let's look one more time. It says, and whose belly you fill with your treasure. 
this is interesting. What, what do we have here? Well, what we have, friends, is an example of what's known as the passive wrath of God upon those who would rather be satisfied with the creation instead of the creator. And we see this principle most clearly laid out in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read you a few verses from there, starting in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even... Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now here's where this keys in to what I'm talking about. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. So here we see that God, in many cases, will allow people to live in the temporal haze and the stupefying dullness of the good life. That they self-define and desire more than relationship with God and an awareness of the reality of eternity. So, if we're thinking about this correctly, then we would understand that these enemies of David, they were living to them what seemed like very full, content, and comfortable lives. And yet, they were poor, naked, wretched, blind, and foolish without even knowing it. Now, most of us can nod our heads in agreement to this in principle, and when it is about somebody else. But the nodding of our heads does not mean anything if we don't live in light of the upside-down and inside-out truth about how the kingdom of God works. So we should expect, then, that God in his great mercy and love towards us would continually mess with us through this kind of divine agitation that keeps us from the damning stupor of satisfaction with this life. We should live continually agitated with the brokenness of this world and the effects of sin to the degree that the only place we can ever find rest and contentment is in Christ. Think about with me the overall biblical history and the arc of redemption. When all was perfect in the Garden of Eden and fellowship with God was unhindered by sin, this, this was not an issue, but from that point on, from the point when sin entered the scene, what does it look like for God to love and to deal with his people or to use them even for his purposes? Well, let's, let's just trace the ark a little bit. Let's think of some names. Let's think of Abraham, first of all. Was Abraham's life perfect and comfortable and that's why, and that's why he was in a position for God to come and use him? No, Abraham was struck with the intense pain of infertility and the fact that he did not think he was going to have an heir. It was in the midst of that that God was able to come to him and say, I'm going to give you an heir. That God was able to come and do something miraculous that was going to set that boy apart from just something that may have happened from biological happenstance. Let's think of Joseph. 
Was it the ease and comfort of his life that put him in position under Pharaoh in order to save God's special family that the continuing arc of redemption could go forward? No, it was the fact that he was betrayed by his very brothers, sold into slavery. They go home and tell his father he's dead. It's the very fact that he was lied about and thrown into jail unjustly that ended him up, him up in the position to be under Pharaoh to not only save Egypt, but also save those around, including the family of God. Think of Moses. Was it great comfort that God found Moses and dealt with him? No, it's the fact that he saw the mistreatment of his brothers, ended up murdering somebody, flees out to Midian, and God meets him there in a burning bush. I'm talking about agitation. I'm talking about divine agitation. I'm talking about the fact that we tend to shrink back from difficulty, striving, struggle. We tend to want to cry out and think that somehow God is not doing what he said he would do when all the time he's doing what he said he would do. When he's loving us and he's dealing with us and he's using us. Joshua, the physical battle of having to go in and, and take out those who were inhabiting the land that God had promised. Perhaps a more literal and easy to see battle in Joshua's life is how God used him. Elijah, coming up against the prophets of Baal, pursued by Jezebel and all the rest that would have his head. David, continually beset not only by the trouble that came with his own sin, but also those who hated him, those who would have him dead. Now, as we think through this, there is one, one person in biblical history who seemed to live in, in my estimation, the greatest degree of wealth and comfort, contentment, prestige in his life, and his name was Solomon. And I want to read you a summary of Solomon's life from the book of 1 Kings. This is in chapter 11, starting in verse 3. It says, He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. How many of us, if we're honest would prefer Solomon's life story to David's in terms of the difficulty, or Moses, or pick your person. And yet we see the outcome of that kind of existence on this temporal plane of earth and this life. It didn't end up well for Solomon. Now, I think we need to say this, to be clear, to, to Make sure we're rounding it out. Sometimes the divine agitation that God uses, sometimes it is the result of our own sin. I think of Jacob and Esau. Jacob being the deceiver. Jacob lying in order to get the birthright. Lying in order to get the blessing. This put him at odds with his brother Esau. This means he had to flee from his home. His sin, his sin, was the thing that caused that agitation. Okay? Uh, sometimes it's other people's sin that... God uses as his divine agitation. I, I go back to the example of Joseph and his brothers. Not that Joseph was innocent. Uh, he was a fool in how much he talked about his dreams and probably prideful in his, in his youth. But it was the sin of his brothers that ended him up in slavery and in Egypt and in jail and all of that, right? So it was someone else's sin. Sometimes it's dark spiritual forces that 
this agitation comes through. I think of Elijah at Mount Carmel fighting the prophets of Baal and all of the demonic forces that were at work there. Sometimes this agitation is from God himself. If we look at John 9, the, the, the people standing around are wanting to know, why was this man born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? And what was Jesus' response? Neither. This man was born blind to the glory of God so that his works could be shown in him. Here's the overarching idea that we need to get from that, though. Whether it's our sin that causes the agitation, it's someone else's sin that causes the agitation, it's dark demonic forces, or God brings it himself. All those God is able to use because of the might of his hand to accomplish his purposes and do with you exactly what he intends to do. Woo! Come on now. If you ain't excited about that, you either didn't hear me, didn't understand, or you weren't listening. It doesn't matter what the source of the agitation is, friend. God can take that and use it and will, and he's shown us time and time again that that's what he does. That was Joseph's summary. When his brothers are cowering before him thinking, oh, we messed up, and now he's got the power to bring vengeance down on our head. Joseph's summary statement of the entire thing was what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Come on now. He's working all things to the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So how many things have you despaired in just simply because you forgot that promise? Or it got cliche or it's on your fridge, you've seen it too many times and forgot to hold it in the midst of difficulty. Amen. I'm not going to get over that. You can if you want to. I'm going to stay excited about it. I'm going to live in light of it. Believe that. Amen. And so th this brings us to a question we should ask ourselves. Why are we surprised when we feel this agitation, when we have what feels like difficulty in this life? Why are we surprised when we consider how God deals with his people through all of the scriptures? Maybe you can think of someone else. Solomon was the only one I could think of that had it on easy street. Every other person whose name is mentioned in the scriptures is because God through difficult circumstances, use them as a part of accomplishing his overall mission of redemption of the world. And, and the other lie we tell ourselves is because Solomon was rich and wise and everybody thought he was cool and he, he had all the things that so many people would think means success, that his life was free of trouble. Obviously it wasn't. So why are we surprised? I'm not sure we can answer that, but I think Peter would be annoyed that we are. Let me read this, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. So if we couldn't catch the hint from the consistent pattern of how God deals with his people throughout all of the biblical narrative, Peter just, point, just spelled it out. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Do not, right? Now some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, but you know, remember the stories about Peter? Guys, you know, he's kind of rash. He's chopping people's ears off. You know, Jesus said, get, me, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, he's the only guy that got get that designation in the whole scriptures, right? So, you know, is that the guy we want to be taking our cues from on this? Okay, 
I would still say, yes, Jesus chose him to be the leader of the disciples, even though he was, uh, you know, perpetually had his foot in his mouth and was like action man without thinking half the time. Jesus saw something in that that he thought he could use. So there's something to be said for that, but that will get us way off track. But let, let's say you're just like, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. That sounds extreme, and Peter's extreme. Maybe that's what's going on. Well, how about Paul? How about Paul the theologian? Let's, let's go to the other end of the personality spectrum in case you don't relate to Peter, okay? How about Paul? Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that right there? That's a good verse. Amen. Through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and that hope will not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out on us in Christ Jesus. I'm preaching better than you're saying amen right now. I know it. I can hear myself. That's a good word. Now, we don't use exalt very much, so let's, let's work on that a second. Rejoice is a good synonym, but exalt has in it even another connotation. Of, to exalt is like to, to celebrate because of a victory. So we, we celebrate because of a victory. We rejoice. We exalt in our salvation. But what did he say? We also exalt. We rejoice. We celebrate in our tribulation. Why? Well, because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. You, can't, you will have no chance to persevere, right? If I sit you in your ideal situation, whatever that is, on the beach with the umbrella drink, whatever, and we just perpetually do whatever your idea of relaxation and comfort and, and, and success is for the rest of your life, what will you have to persevere through? Nothing, correct? Okay, that's pretty easy to understand. Perseverance then is, develops proven character, it says. Proven character is the next step. Now, that's also, I think, we just don't put these in sequence. Once we break it down, it becomes easier to understand. Well, perseverance is the only way we see in the scriptures that character is built. That's pretty easy to understand. If you, if you take a kid and, and you never let them suffer through anything, you never let them struggle whatsoever, you stick a silver spoon in their mouth from the time they're born and just make sure they never have to strive or struggle with anything, you end up typically with a spoiled brat without a depth of character. God's a better dad than that. Amen. That proven character leads us to hope and a hope that doesn't disappoint. Amen. So the question here is, let's, let's first of all call this out. <laughs> to exalt in tribulation, to rejoice in tribulation. Are you connecting with what that means? That means the times where typically I would be tempted to get discouraged, to complain, to run, whatever my reaction is, cope somehow, what the Bible's calling me to do in light of Christ is to rejoice, to exalt, to celebrate in the midst of tribulation. That's weird. Can we just say that? That's real weird. It's not just hard. It's weird. But so is worshiping the son of a Jewish carpenter that was crucified by the Romans. Unless there's some bigger elements at play. Which there are. Because he wasn't just the son of a Jewish carpenter murdered by the Romans. He was the very son of God come to save the world, who after was murdered, by the way, rose up out of the grave. And so there's some other things you got to think about. And so, yes, it is weird for us to rejoice in the midst of tribulation. I will grant you that, but there's some other things at play. There's some other elements 
to consider. And so what I want to do with you now is I want to, I want to ask the question. Okay, I don't want to just leave you with rejoice and tribulation because that's really weird and it's, it's, it's disconnected from the, the, like the practicality of, of what we observe in life and what we're used to doing. And so let's, let's get down into some specifics of how do we do this? How do we rejoice? How do we exult in tribulation? I want to give you some tools to begin. Because here's the thing. Like I said earlier, I know we can all nod and say, yes, God used difficulty in Noah's life and Moses' life and David's life to accomplish his will. That's right. They, he did do that. Glory to God. But when you translate it to what you're going through right now, you're going to be a lot less prone to say glory to God about God using difficulty and struggle to accomplish his will in you and in the broader sense of him accomplishing his will in the earth. Is that right or wrong? Okay. Amen. So how do we rejoice in tribulation? How do we do this practically? The first thing is we thank God for not letting us be content during this temporal journey. We thank God for not letting us be content during this temporal journey. Now, when I say content, I don't mean in a godly sense. There is a contentment in God that is great gain. We know that. But I'm talking about content like the guys in verse 14 of Psalm 17. Content with this life, with the trappings of this world. That God and his great love for us doesn't let us settle here, get too comfortable here. Do we thank him for that? You see, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting that we, we see the reality of what the scriptures are saying, we see it true in, in other people's lives, but when it comes, when it comes right down to it, and, and the sting of the situation, whatever it is, the struggle, the, the emotional weight of it hits us, it, doesn't, it just doesn't occur to us many times for our reaction to be, praise you, God, thank you. I know you're working in this. You've shown me enough times in enough ways, not only in your scriptures, but in my own life, that you're, you're committed to this process. You're committed to this thing you said you're going to do. That your promises do not end up void. And it's this that we have to come to. We, we, we need to really actually cultivate in ourselves and ask for the Holy Spirit's help to cultivate in us a gratitude that God deals with people this way. Because you might be sitting here going, wow, I don't know if I've really connected all this before. So God uses struggle and striving and difficulty as a way to love us and keep moving us along and to incorporate us into what he's doing in his kingdom broadly. Like, whew, I don't know if I'm thrilled about that idea. That might be where you're at right now, but what I'm saying is, by God's grace, my prayer for you, and I'm hoping you'll grab a hold of this and pray it for yourself, is that you will be grateful that God will not, that he will agitate you, that he will trouble you and not allow you to be content and satisfied with what this world has to offer. That he will make you by his great love, that he will, he will trouble you until your contentment and your hope is set upon eternal things. Hallelujah. God has promised us his presence, and that is a great comfort. <laughs> but it also means that he can always find us. Every time we deal with the struggle and striving, and, and, and sometimes even the exhaustion of traversing this broken world, every single time, we have two options. 
We can either raise our fists toward God in rebellious anger, or we can lift our hands in grateful worship. Every single time you've got the choice. Is it something that you're going to decide to do just in the power of your own flesh? Absolutely not. This is why the Bible is full of admonitions and encouragements for us to rely upon the power of the Spirit. Because God is calling us to something here that is totally unnatural and opposite of our first tendency and inclination. But I praise God that anything he's asked us to do, he's also promised to empower us to do. Amen. So we thank God for not letting us be content during this temporal journey. The second thing is, what am I doing? I'm, I am trying to teach you how to rejoice in tribulation, how to do this very strange thing God has called us to do. How to reframe our thinking to see this from God's eternal perspective instead of our very finite temporal perspective. So the, the second thing is that we thank God for being with us through this temporal journey. You see, uh, Jesus promised in Matthew, when he gave the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. And then he said, lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. We have been promised God's presence. Jesus was just echoing what the Father had already revealed about his consistent presence throughout the Old Testament. You'll see over and over and over again, God say something to the effect of, do not fear, have no fear, for either I am God or I am with you. Over and over and over and over and over again. Of the most frequent and consistent promises in the word is that God is with us. And friends, if we are understanding what this looks like, if we're understanding that our tendency to seek for comfort, our tendency to seek for ease, our tendency to, like water, try to find the path of least resistance is actually oftentimes doing the exact opposite of what God is wanting to do with us. If we grab a hold of that, we really understand that. With it then comes the apprehension and the fear of, oh man, what does that mean life's going to look like then? And what you're going to need when that fear and apprehension tries to grip you and get you to go back to the old pattern of just doing what's easy for you is you're going to need to cling to the fact that God has promised to be with you, that you're not doing this alone, that every single step, no matter what that difficulty looks like, no matter how hard the situation is, he's with you. We have the added bonus of knowing that Jesus is a high priest who is not unfamiliar with our struggles. It's not that when we come to him and say, Lord, this is hard, he goes, boy, I wish, I wish I could relate to that. He knows and he cares. I'm so glad we don't serve some disconnected, uncaring God. He sees, he knows, he cares. Now, there's a great comfort in knowing that God is always with us. I hope we're grabbing a hold of that, but we also need to understand that the fact that God is with us means he can always find us. And, and we have this tendency to try to play hide and seek with him. We have this tendency that when things get hard, we'll try to run. Uh, and you can try to run from his loving and divine agitation, but I would just ask you to consider this. How... How did that work out for Moses? Okay, Moses sees his Hebrew brothers being mistreated. He kills the Egyptian that does that and then does what? Flees. He runs. Runs out to Midian. He's running away from the problem. Who finds him there? God. 
in a burning bush. And, and what does God end up, where does God end up sending Moses on his mission? To deal with what problem? The same problem. Actually, what I want you to do is go back there, and instead of just killing an, an Egyptian slave master, one of these low guys, I want you to go address Pharaoh himself. And let him know that the God of Israel, the one true God, says, let my people go so they can come and worship me. He's like, whoo, I'm out of here. Not messing with that. And God said, yes, you are. I'll see you back over there. Well, that's just one example. I don't know if that's really good. Well, what about Jonah? I want you to go to the Ninevites and let them know there's mercy for them. I love them. I want them to serve me. No, I don't want to deal with the Ninevites. They're nasty people. They hate you and they hate us. I'm not doing it. I'm going to jump on a boat, go the opposite direction. Didn't take long. You got spit up on the beach by a giant fish right down the road from Nineveh. Okay, Lord, I'm going to go to Nineveh. We'll have a conversation. You guys see what I'm saying? It, it is, I'm not, I'm not, please understand something. I am not preaching at you. I, every proverbial smack in the back of the head you're receiving during this sermon, I am also receiving because I have a tendency to run. I have a tendency to be discouraged because of divine agitation, because of difficulty in my life, because of struggle and striving. I have a tendency to wish I could just relax a little bit. Like, God, can we just get a break here? I have a tendency to forget that there's an eternal perspective far above what I can see, that God is always, he has proven beyond the shadow of doubt, he is always working in the background. He is doing things I can see sometimes. Glory to God when he pulls back the curtain and lets me glimpse some of the workings of his hands, but he's always doing things far more complicated and deeper than I could ever even imagine. He's working on things that if he explained it to me, I would, I would, it wouldn't matter. I wouldn't even be able to hang with what he's doing. And so what do I do? I rest. <laughs> I rest in the might of his hand, the faithfulness of his promises. I don't run from that agitation. I engage with it, knowing that he's with me. And when I get done with that one, there'll be another one. And then there'll be another one. And then there'll be another one. And at some point, either he's going to blow a trumpet, come and get me, or he's going to grant me the permission of death. That's when I get to rest. And David talks about that here, doesn't he? The third thing, so I said we thank God for not letting us be content during this temporal journey. I'm real serious about this. This week, would you seriously, in your prayers, include God, thank you for not letting me be content with the trappings of this world. There's a lot of nodding happening here. I know I keep referencing that, and we're, we're, all, we're getting this, and, and that's great. But if we don't go from here and do something about living in reality of this inside-out, upside-down kingdom principle of how God deals with us, being hearers and not doers is a waste of time. So I'm asking you this week to thank God for not letting you be content, even if that means you're agitated. It will mean you're agitated. <laughs> Maybe I'll make it more simple. Thank you, God, for agitating me. I feel your love in that. <laughs> I see your mercy in that. Hallelujah. Will you thank God for being with you through this temporal journey and the difficulty of this this week? Will you thank him that he's not abandoned you? Jesus cried out from the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? You know why? 
God did have to forsake him, so he doesn't have to forsake you. Never. He's with you. God, I hope you rejoice in that this week. And it'll change something about the way you interact with a situation or a person or an agitation. Amen. The last thing I'm going to give you is we submit ourselves to the greatest good of God's glory and the eternal truth of the gospel. We submit ourselves to the greatest good of God's glory and the eternal truth of his gospel. Let me read you verse 15 again. How does David cap this psalm? He, he talks about those whose belly are full of the, the treasure of the trappings of this world. He talks about them being satisfied with those things. And he says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Friends, when we see him, we will see fully the likeness that he has been shaping us into, according to Romans 8.29. You remember what that says, right? That he is forming and shaping, he's conforming us into the image of his son. This is part of what God is doing with us. Part of what the agitation is, part of what the difficulty is, is it's, it's carving, it's shaping. It's the same idea as iron sharpening iron. Sometimes he uses us to do it with each other. But he's carving on us, he's shaping us, he's making us into something. And, and what David says, is he says, I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. He's talking about the fact that someday, at some point, that hope he was looking forward to. <laughs> and that, and we, need, we need to say that, right? Like that, All of these Old Testament uh, patriarchs and kings and prophets and warriors that we're talking about, they were looking forward to a future hope. They couldn't see it quite like we can. But even with their limited viewpoint, he's, he's standing in this, that I'll behold your face in righteousness and I'll be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And so... What I'm saying to you is that day when, when, whether it's through death or whether it's through Jesus coming to get us, but we, we have that experience. We, we get to stare fully at his unveiled face. We will understand more fully every pain in our life that was the press of his fingers shaping us like clay on the potter's wheel. Because when we see him, We'll see, we'll understand better. Oh, that's what you were making me into. That's why this was so much work. When we see perfection unveiled, we will understand what it was, the great pressure we felt as he molded and shaped us and made us, conformed us into this image of Christ. And we will rejoice once again. We, don't, we now look through a, a glass dimly, Paul said. We, we don't see it all right now, and we need to humbly acknowledge that. In the places where we are tempted to say, I don't, God, I don't see how this difficult situation, how this could possibly be used to, to benefit anything, including me. Oh, dear friend, but you're just a human. You're not God. But one day, one day, we will see the full righteousness and glory of his unveiled face. And we'll remember back to all those pains and all those hurts and all that striving and agitation. And we'll say, oh, I know, now I see. I see what that pain was. I understand what that pressure was. You were shaping me and forming me into something this beautiful, this majestic, this glorious. Hallelujah. Amen. 
And friends, this is only possible because of Jesus. I tilted my hand a little bit and already said this, but everybody we're mentioning, whether it's Noah, it's Abraham, it's Jacob, it's Isaac, it's Joseph, it's, it's Judah, it's any of them, it's Moses, it's Joshua, all of these guys, David, anything that God was doing with them and all the work that they did, all the places that they filled in God's redemptive plan, they were all looking forward to this future hope. Abraham was called righteous by faith, but his faith couldn't have been in the finished work of Christ. It had not happened yet. He was stuck in this, this temporal plane that exists with time, and so he couldn't see the full thing. He was looking forward to something, that God would fulfill this promise that somehow by faith, righteousness would be accomplished. And how is it that that was done? Well, of course, we know that all of this, everything we're talking about, it's all only possible because of Jesus. Every one of those Old Testament folks Ruth, Esther, every one of them that was looking forward, trusting that God was going to deliver his people in an ultimate and final way. They were looking forward to something, waiting the arrival of God's Messiah. That Messiah came in Christ. And now we, dear friends, have the great benefit of not only seeing all of their story formed out, and we can see how we can trace the crimson thread of the gospel through the whole thing up to Christ, but we now have the rest of the scriptures that instructs us and teaches us how to live in light of the fact that Christ came, that the great promise, the promise was fulfilled, that Jesus did come. He did live the perfect life that none of us could have, and then he died the death that every one of us deserved in our place for our sins. It's because of God's gospel that is centered upon the person and work of Christ that anything we're talking about today is possible. And it's also the very reason that we can play a part in a plan of redemption that extends far beyond each of us individually, that extends beyond this church corporately, that God has called us to take the light of this gospel as ambassadors into this world, to go into in every possible sphere of influence that God would grant us to share the hope that people do not have to live constantly trying to avoid agitation, to avoid, to find some, to try to eke out some false semblance of heaven here on earth. Whether, whatever coping mechanisms they're using, whatever they're doing to try to come to some place where they can be content here, we get to go and tell them the good news that there is no contentment found here, but there is contentment found somewhere and it's in the arms of Christ and it's looking forward to his eternity and you can have hope in him. You can be freed from this endless rat race and chase of something that you're never going to catch. Didn't Solomon talk about that? Didn't he say that chasing all these temporal pleasures, it was like something. It was like chasing what? It was like chasing wind. And how pitiful it is when humans spend their life chasing wind many times throughout, thinking they've jumped and they've grabbed it just to open their hands and find out once again they're empty. And the cycle of brokenness continues. Dear friends, we need, if, if nothing else is agitating to you today, if you find yourself in a place where life seems pretty good, there's lots that I can point to that it, 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 I feel like I am living the good life. Well, friend, let me, let me ask you right now to pray that God would break your heart over this. There's a bunch of people that don't even know they're chasing wind. And so that's what I'm telling you. Even if your life, even if you've done the impossible somehow and you've constructed a life where you've insulated yourself from struggle, maybe... Maybe you're a billionaire and you've, you've got the wherewithal to make sure you have very little struggle in your life. You've got so many servants, you don't even have to think about the next thing you're going to do. Maybe, maybe that's your position here. I don't know you if you're in here and that's your position, but let's just say that person exists. Here's the reality. It's hollow. It's not real contentment. It's a shadow. It's a counterfeit. And so, dear friends, can we please quit chasing that ourselves, but can we also have the boldness motivated by love to tell people they can quit chasing it too? That they can find real, lasting, eternal contentment 
in the love that God provides and in the promise of his presence forever. We've got to be willing to speak the gospel to do that. You can't just be nice to people. They're not going to get it from that. But we've got to be willing to tell them who Jesus is. Part of this deal is submitting to his mastery. can't be your own master. That's not how this works. You've got to trust him. But there's nothing more freeing than trusting the one who made you and submitting yourself to the process of him shaping you however he sees fit to do that. And there's something really precious and beautiful. You know, some, some of why we struggle as the church to catch the ear and attention of people and tell our story and our story is Jesus' story. Some of why we struggle with that is because we suffer just like the lost do. Because we don't do this very weird thing. How, how, much, how much attention do you think the body of Christ would catch if instead of this shaking our fists when we struggle, we were to raise our hands in worship? Whoa, that's weird. These folks are weird. <laughs> but guess what? The power of the Spirit of God is that He'll turn that attention that started with just seeing that we're weird and it'll, it'll morph into a curiosity and it'll open the door for us to speak to people who have been stupefied by contentment with this world. And it'll elicit in them that thirst and that hunger that Miss J prayed about at the beginning. That'll drive them. How many people content with absolutely everything in their life wake up and say, you know what? I, I need God. You see, friends, it's in the realization of how broken and desperate this world is that we find ourselves groping and feeling, as the scriptures say. But the beautiful promise is we'll find him. If we'll seek for him, we will find him. And he's anointed us and he's called us to grab the hands of those that are groping and seeking for some kind of meaning and contentment in this world and to lead them to the one place they'll find it, to the one fountain where they can drink and not thirst again. And so will we stop focusing so much on our own whatever reaction to whatever we're going through? I'm not trying to downplay the difficulty of this life. I'm saying with very clear, concise verbiage as much as I can, I know it's hard. This world is hard. It was hard for Abraham and it was hard for David and it was hard for all of these guys. It was difficult and yet all the time God was doing what he promised to do. Shaping, molding. It was hard for Moses, man. He tried to escape. God put him right back in the middle of it. Moses had to bow, though. He had to acknowledge, oh, okay, yes, you are God. And you might be saying, well, yeah, okay. But Moses got a burning bush, okay? You're spitting while you're talking. You're pretty excited, but you're not a burning bush. So, like, if God would give me a burning bush, friends, <clears throat> here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. Because I'll have people say this to me. Well, if, if God is real, why won't, he just, why won't he just show up and tell us? Hello, his name is Jesus. He showed up 2,000 years ago. Look, just because, just because this country was founded a couple hundred years ago and you weren't there to see the document sign, are you doubting the fact that America exists or is whatever? No. 2,000 years means nothing about the reality of the fact that Christ came. God did come and say, I'm God. 
and he showed us with a bunch of signs and wonders, healing people and feeding 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, and then the pinnacle of all of it is getting up out of the grave. What do you mean? I wish he'd come and say that he's God. He did. He has. You've got your burning bush. His name is Jesus. Now go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. Amen. Amen. May we rejoice in all our suffering and striving, trusting that our good Father is only doing what he's always promised to do for our good and his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I sense the faithful working of your spirit in this room upon our hearts and minds. I thank you that you have anointed the preaching of your word to affect change in the hearts and minds of your people. Thank you, God. This is not just something we do because we decided to, but it's something you have ordained and anointed for this purpose. So God, we submit joyfully to the potter's wheel. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to the process. We repent, Lord God, for every single time we've shaken our fists at you when what we felt was the pressure of your fingers upon us, shaping us and molding us and making us more like you. God, forgive every single time we've tried to run. Forgive every single time we've tried to cope some other way. We've run to some counterfeit. We've done everything we possibly could to try to not feel that agitation. God, we embrace with open arms all that you have for us. We know that because this world is broken and because all that has happened is a result of sin, that this is the way you shape us and move us along. This is the way you're accomplishing your will. Thank you. We thank you right now that you will not allow us because of your great love for us to be content with the trappings of this world. Thank you that you consistently will make it difficult on us to the degree that we cannot find a comfortable place to just rest and ride out this 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years you give us. Thank you for your great mercy upon us. Thank you for your persistence and faithfulness in coming after us. Thank you that you chase us, but you don't have to step far because you're always with us. Thank you that we can't hide from you. Thank you that every promise you've ever made, you stick to. I thank you we don't have to guess or wonder if this is the one time you're not going to be faithful. You have proven that what you say, you do. And so, God, let us walk in light of these things. Let us live in light of these things. Let us think in light of these things. Let us do ministry in light of these things. Let us worship in light of these things. God, help us. Help us to change our thinking. This is completely antithetical to all that the world teaches us every day. Every lesson the world is teaching us crosses exactly across the opposite grain of the message you're teaching us today from your Psalms. But God, we want to go with you. We trust you. We know the world has lessons to offer, but we have, we have followed those lessons and we have seen what happens at the end. We already know. We've tasted that gravel and it's not good. We want the bread of life. We want to drink from the spring of ever-flowing water that you provide. And so God, please help us. Please accept our repentance for the times we've not done this. Please convict us as we move forward, God. Don't let us get caught back in the foolish rat race of trying to find comfort and contentment in this world without you. We love you and we thank you. 
Thank you for your dedication to us, Lord. We love you so much, but we only love you because you loved us first and you showed us what love is through Christ and his cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.